Hello, the uh, Bible reading is Mark 6. It's two passages, first one, 1 to 13, and then 30 to 56. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter our house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And over to verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away, so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of fish and bread. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat 
and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Most people in Australia know that we've got a pretty strong culture here of cutting down the tall poppy. Peter Harcher from the Sydney Morning Herald, he writes about it like this. He says, according to the unspoken national ethos, no Australian is permitted to assume that he or she is better than any other Australian. How is this enforced? By the the prompt corrective of levelling derision. It has a name, the tall poppy syndrome. The tallest flowers in the field will be cut down to the same size as all the others. This is sometimes misunderstood. It isn't success that offends Australians. It's the affront committed by anyone who starts to put on superior airs. Now, since I've moved here to Adelaide, I suspect actually that tall poppy syndrome is actually stronger in New South Wales than here. You see, in New South Wales, it's it's entirely appropriate to make a a kind of preemptive strike In fact, it's your duty. You don't have to wait for someone to do something that that shows that they need to be cut down to size. You just have to have good reason to suspect that they might get big ideas about themselves if you don't help them out. So every so often you just give a little snip, just out of kindness, just to make sure they don't get any ideas about themselves being special. Now sometimes it's just harmless fun. But at other times, it's not really a good thing at all. And apparently, some research in New Zealand has shown that a culture of of tall poppy syndrome in an organisation can reduce the average performance of people by 20%. Not that I'd trust that study. I mean, it's from New Zealand. They probably surveyed sheep. You see? That's tall poppy syndrome happening right there. That's my old New South Wales self speaking. It's terrible. It's rude. It's bad. It's also a little bit funny if you're not from New Zealand. But in our chapter today, we see something kind of like tall poppy syndrome. But it's not at all funny, not even a tiny bit. It's actually quite sad. It's tragic. We read in that first verse that Jesus comes to his hometown, to Nazareth. And then we get to see the locals trying to figure him out. And they're struggling. 
Now, in one sense, Jesus is clearly a tall poppy. He stands over and above all others, and he knows it, but he doesn't quite fit the normal tall poppy scenario. Because even though he's like this, nonetheless, he not only stoops down and serves others, but he numbers himself with the lowest of the low. And he doesn't do it in a patronizing way, but he genuinely gives himself to these people. And if he is anything like a kind of tall poppy, he's somehow also the underdog at the same time. And as we've seen, many in the crowds, they love what they see in Jesus. But the people in Jesus' hometown, they're not so sure. Look at verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And don't miss this. Their dominant reaction The dominant reaction of of the people in Jesus' hometown is that they're amazed by him. They think that what they're hearing and seeing is amazing stuff. But look at where they go with that. They ask, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? It sounds like they're impressed. But a different impression of Jesus holds them back. Look at verse 3. They ask, Isn't this the carpenter? They're thinking, who is this blue-collar bloke pretending to be a scholar? Didn't we pay him a few years back to renovate the bathroom? They ask, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? For some reason, whenever people know your mum, they stop taking you so seriously. But the people in Jesus' hometown, not only did they not take him seriously they go even further than that. Look at verse 3. And they took offence at him. Why? Why should Jesus being so amazing offend them? Jesus identifies the problem in verse 4. He says, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. A prophet brings something extraordinary. A prophet brings the very words of God. But those who are naturally closest to the prophet, they're the ones who are most likely to miss it because they're most likely to be unable to see past what's ordinary about the prophet. And more than that, they often don't want to see past the ordinary because of pride. And so where a prophet is most familiar He's least honoured. And here, Jesus turns up and instead of saying, how good is Nazareth? I owe so much to this place. Instead, he has the audacity to turn up and say to the people who made him, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so they don't miss what's extraordinary because they can't see it. They miss it because they don't want to see it. They use what's ordinary about Jesus to justify ignoring what's clearly extraordinary. I find this actually quite a terrifying moment in history because I reckon that it would be quite easy to repeat it even today. These people, they know Jesus well. In one sense, they know him better than we know him. I mean, could you have listed the brothers of Jesus? I couldn't have. James, Joseph... Judas, Simon. 
But this kind of closeness to Jesus, it didn't help them. It actually hindered them. They couldn't see past the ordinary. They didn't want to see past the ordinary. Now, it's not exactly the same scenario. But I reckon if you grew up in a Christian home, there are some warnings for you here. Jesus, he can seem so familiar, so ordinary, so everyday, that we could just miss how extraordinary he really is. You've known the name of of Jesus before you could even speak. You know Jesus is great. Well, at least you know that's what people keep saying about him. But I'm guessing that you also know that it could be easy to not want to honour him and so to find reasons not to. I, I was like this as a teenager growing up. For a long time, for me, Jesus was just mum and dad's thing. And to me, he was completely unremarkable. Now, in some ways, because of the ordinariness of mum and dad, it, it was so easy to miss the extraordinariness of Jesus, their king and, and their saviour. You might be feeling like that even today, even right now. You might be here at church because this is mum and dad's thing. But that would be a tragic mistake to make. You see, God is not your mum and dad's God. Not in the sense that they don't own him or control him or decide what he's like. God is so much bigger, so much more extraordinary than we can ever comprehend. For me, something that eventually helped me to see this as a teenager was noticing the difference between my mum and her brothers and sisters, and particularly seeing the difference between me and and my cousins. Mum, she'd become a Christian in her late teens, and she was actually from a fairly dysfunctional family. And so when we'd we'd visit our cousins, I often felt so different to them. There were drugs, teen pregnancies, conflict between them and their parents, and all that sort of thing. But the biggest difference was that we just had a completely different outlook on life. You could see the the ripples of a dysfunctional family, a hard upbringing in in the families of all my mum's brothers and sisters. And even in, in our own family, you could still see those ripples, but you could see real difference. The course of of my mum's life had been changed by Jesus and there was no other way to explain it. And it caused me to look beyond the ordinariness of my parents and recognise just how extraordinary the work of God, the power of God is. Your parents don't speak for God. He speaks for himself. And he may or may not be speaking through your parents. But either way, Don't make the mistake of missing the extraordinary just because it comes to you via the ordinary. This rejection of Jesus in his hometown, it it again raises this question of whether Jesus is a leader worth following. But in so many ways, that's already been decisively answered for us in this biography. We saw Jesus calm the storm. We saw Jesus give life to that man possessed by a legion of demons life to a lady afflicted with suffering. And we've just seen him, just before this, reach down into death itself and pull back the life of a little girl. Now, at this point, we know that Jesus is a leader worth following. What's new here is that Jesus uses this challenge to his leadership to start to instruct his disciples 
in what kind of leaders they should be. See, look at verse 7 again with me. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Here we see Jesus work in the way God has always works, always worked. He uses ordinary people. He sends out the disciples who we've seen are barely keeping up with him. And he sends them out with his own extraordinary message and his own power over evil and sickness. I reckon one of the extraordinary things about God is the way that he always does his work through the ordinary. And it's always been this way. Right at the beginning, God moulds Adam out of the stuff of this earth and sets him up as the ruler of this earth under him and a conversation partner alongside him. God, he always seems to choose the younger, the more ordinary over the older. Abel over Cain, Jacob over Esau, Judah over Reuben, David over his brothers, and it goes on. God chooses the weak, ordinary Israelites who are slaves to be his people. God chooses Moses, too shy to speak. Gideon, too scared to fight. Ruth, a foreigner. Rahab, a prostitute. God does his extraordinary work through the ordinary. And it's no different here. God is happy to take on ordinary humanity in Jesus. And then God is happy to grow his kingdom through raising up ordinary men to be his apostles. And of course, it's no different today either. God's still on about raising up leaders, not apostles, but ordinary people who will take his extraordinary message to the world. People who will follow, who will lead others in following Jesus. At this point, you might be thinking, I feel inadequate to that task. And if that's the case, it's good, because as we'll see, that's what actually makes you more qualified than most. Look at what Jesus is teaching the disciples as he sends them out in verse 8, where we see this. See, he sends them out vulnerable and ill-resourced. And he does it so that they'll know without a doubt that it's God who's working the extraordinary through them. I went hiking, I might have told you this a, a while back, but I went hiking once with a couple of uni students who wanted to be like Bear Grylls, and they wanted to take almost nothing with them. Now, their confidence in, in this particular situation wasn't that God would provide. That wasn't where their confidence was at all. Their confidence was in their manliness. But I wasn't particularly confident in their manliness. I'd seen the fake tanning lotion that they used. And so at that point, I put my confidence in my own resources. I took a sleeping bag, I took food, and I took matches. And as it turned out, the first snake that we saw, we all ran, around, r- ran away screaming rather than catching it for dinner. And after 30 minutes of them trying to start the fire with the flint, I pulled out my matches. I put my confidence in my own resources, and I can tell you what, I was glad I did. It was like camping with Hamish and Andy. <laughs> but Jesus here, he sends out the disciples with no option to be confident in their own resources. That's what he's doing. They go out as ordinary men with ordinary resources and God does the extraordinary through them. But the question we have to ask is, have the disciples grasped what Jesus is teaching them? Do they know without a doubt that it's God who's working the extraordinary through them? Now Mark actually takes quite a bit of time to answer this for us. 
And in between Jesus sending the disciples out and them coming back, we've got this really long report on King Herod, which we jumped over today. Now, it's here, first of all, because Herod, he hears about the stir that the disciples are causing and he thinks that John the Baptist is somehow back from the dead. Herod's got a guilty conscience. And so Mark, he here explains to us why it is that John's now dead. But this report here does more than just fill in historical details about Herod killing John. It serves as a reminder of the kind of leaders that this world is so good at making. See, Herod, he's anything but ordinary. He's extravagant. He's sensual. He's powerful. But he's also self-seeking, gutless and disgusting. And so as we ask this question of whether the disciples have grasped that it's God alone who's doing his work through them, we've also got to consider the question of what kind of leaders they're going to be. Will they be self-seeking leaders like Herod? Or will they be leaders of a different kind altogether? These are questions actually that are going to play out over several chapters. And it's too early actually to say decisively at this point. But in verse 30, we get a hint that's just a little bit concerning. We read, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. It seems that their focus is on what they'd done, what they'd taught, when it seems clear that their focus should have been on what God had done and what God had taught through them. It's at this point that Jesus models to the disciples exactly what kind of leaders they ought to be. In verse 31, we see that they're all exhausted and so that they they withdraw to a place to rest after their hard work. But the crowd annoyingly follows them and actually outruns them and arrives there first. The disciples are probably thinking at this point, push off you lot, it's me time. But look at how Jesus responds to the crowd in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is nothing like Herod. He's not self-seeking at all. His concern is for the sheep. And did you see exactly how Jesus shows compassion? Verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus' compassion drives him to teach them. They're like lost sheep, needing a shepherd to lead them and to feed them. And Jesus feeds the sheep with his words. But as Jesus feeds their greatest need, the disciples get concerned about the physical needs of the people. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. But look at Jesus' reply, verse 37. You give them something to eat. Why does Jesus say this? What kind of thing is this to say? I mean, what's his point in saying this? You give them something to eat. Even if the disciples had the money, they're in a remote place 
I mean, even if they rocked up to the nearest kind of fish and bread shop and ordered enough for 5,000 people, still they're not going to be able to buy enough bread. The disciples, they know they can't do it. Jesus knows they can't do it. And that's exactly his point. They've come back in some ways singing their own praises, talking about all they'd done, all they'd taught. But what they needed to learn was that they only have authority as they're given it by Jesus. The disciples just don't have what it takes to feed God's people, not physically and not spiritually. But then look at what happens next in verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Jesus is teaching the disciples what kind of leaders they need to be. They need a shepherd's heart, not looking out for themselves, but looking out for the sheep. And though they don't have what it takes to feed the people, nonetheless, they are to share in shepherding the people by feeding them. But only as they distribute what Jesus has provided. They don't provide the food or make the food. They simply bring to the people what Jesus has prepared for them. They're like waiters. And this was a lesson that they desperately needed to learn. And actually, it's a lesson that any leader of God's people desperately needs to learn. So Scott, Dave, and I, as leaders here at TNE, we need to know this. But also the leadership team, community group leaders, fixed leaders, jam leaders desperately need to know this. And parents, you need to know this. We're commissioned by God to do the extraordinary. We're to compassionately feed his people with his word. We bring only what Jesus has prepared for his people, nothing more and nothing less. And we're to do it fully mindful that in and of ourselves, we're just ordinary, humble waiters. But through us, God is doing a critical work. And more than anything else, what this world needs is more and more people who will lead by compassionately taking God's word to others. At this point, Jesus does some things that might seem a little bit strange and and might wonder what on earth is going on. So he sends the disciples off in the boat across the lake while he dismisses the crowds. Then he goes and prays alone, which he often does before he reveals something massive about himself. And then sometime later, Jesus sees the disciples still on the lake, straining against the wind. They're not getting anywhere. They're getting nowhere without him. And they've been at it the whole night. And so in verse 48, we read, shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. There's so many things that are strange about this. Like, why does Jesus send them off without him? Why does Jesus seem to wait so long before he goes out to help them? Why does he walk on water? It's not his usual form of transport. But I reckon strangest of all is why it is that Mark insists that we have to understand this event alongside the feeding of the 5,000. Have a look at verse 49. 
When they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they, they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Why? For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They're amazed. They're terrified because Mark says they're missing something. But what have they missed? They missed something to do with the loaves. What on earth is Mark talking about here? He's saying that somehow if, if they'd understood the loaves, then Jesus walking on water and, and calming the wind the instant that he gets into the boat with them wouldn't have been surprising. And Mark says that the reason that they missed it was because their hearts were hard. But what exactly is it that their hard hearts have missed here? Was it simply that they needed to learn, don't be surprised by anything this guy does? It's much more than that. What they missed in the loaves is who exactly this is, who is with them. Their hearts are impervious to grasping who exactly this shepherd is who is feeding his sheep. In Ezekiel 34, 15, God had said, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. God had promised to shepherd his sheep himself And that's exactly what he's doing in Jesus. God alone is the one who can miraculously feed his people. Like in Exodus 16, God says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And once more, again in a wilderness, that's exactly what God's doing in Jesus. If they'd understood the loaves, if they'd just stopped and and put the basket down for a minute and just looked around at 5,000 people in a wilderness, being taught by a compassionate shepherd, being fed spiritually and physically, if they'd looked past the ordinary and actually taken in the extraordinary, what would they have been unable to miss? Wouldn't their hearts have thrilled with what this scene is crying out? which is exactly what Jesus gives them another chance to hear in verse 50. When walking on the water, he cries out to them, Take courage, it is I. He literally says, Take courage, I am, which can mean it is I. But for the soft-hearted, it can only mean that he is the great I am, the great shepherd who feeds his people from heaven. We shouldn't miss that Jesus here in this whole event is still teaching his disciples. He's teaching them still what kind of leaders they need to be. They cannot be leaders who are hard-hearted, which means they need to be compassionate shepherds under him. But more than that, they need to be shepherds whose hearts are soft towards him. They cannot be like the people in Jesus' hometown who refuse to see who he is kind of leaders that Jesus wants are those who will recognize him for who he really is. People who fully comprehend just how extraordinary he is. Jesus wants leaders who recognize that, of course, we've got nothing to bring people unless what we bring them is Christ. 
because he himself is Yahweh, our Lord, our God. Until we've got soft hearts to recognize that, we will never be the leaders that we need to be. It occurred to me that this part of of Jesus' biography here in Mark is very fitting for a time when we've been commissioning Scott and Dave and our jam leaders last week, community group leaders this week, and fixed leaders next week. But it's relevant, of course, not just to them, it's relevant to all of us. Most of us lead in some capacity, whether as a mentor or as a parent. And all of us, leaders included, need to be fed by God. And it could be very easy for us to miss that God uses ordinary people to do that. God uses ordinary people to bring us something extraordinary. Your parents are ordinary. You're quite right. It's true. They are. But when they urge you on to to Jesus, they're leading you to someone who exceeds and excels you. Someone extraordinary. Your community group leaders are quite ordinary. It's true. I mean, I think they're great and I'm very thankful to God for them. But in the end, they're just flawed humans like the rest of us who hardly feel up to the task. But as leaders and as those who are led alike, we should never forget this. God uses ordinary people, but only as they bring us what he's prepared. There are so many good things about being in a community group, like the fellowship and the, and the friendship, sharing life together, sharing each other's burdens and each other's joys. It's wonderful. Community groups are where prayer and pastoral care happen. But we should never forget this. Unless community groups are bringing God's word to us faithfully, carefully, humbly, then we're not receiving what we need. We must never be people who turn our noses up at what God has prepared for us. We've said that our hope for 2018 is that it'll be for us a year of spiritual growth. Do you know that they've done studies, extensive studies on thousands of Christians from heaps of different churches? And what they discover only confirms what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. It's daily, personal reflecting on Scripture that causes spiritual growth. Daily, personal reflecting on Scripture. It's twice as powerful as anything else in being a catalyst for spiritual growth. And so if we're not prepared to feed on that, on what Jesus brings us, on God's Word, then really there's not much point talking about spiritual growth this year because nothing else compares. And if your community group leader is going to take their calling seriously to to feed God's people, then they're not only going to do that on a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday night, but they're going to gently, compassionately be encouraging you to be reading God's Word daily as they set the example in doing it. Jesus wants to raise up leaders who will feed his people, who are not hard-hearted to him, leaders who recognize who he is, leaders who recognize that his word, unaltered and alone, is what feeds the needs of his people. Let's pray. Father, We thank you so much for Jesus, our shepherd. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see who he is and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would continue to open our eyes to see just how extraordinary he is. 
Lord, help us to see that he is the source and the meaning of life. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are so hungry to receive from him the food that we need. And Lord, we pray that those of us who are leaders and parents, that we would recognize that without Jesus we are unable to fulfill the needs of people. Lord, that we can only bring what people need when we bring them Jesus and his word. Lord, we pray that our community groups this year would reflect that. But Lord, every aspect of our lives, in our homes, in this church here, in everywhere where we serve, Lord, help us to see this. We thank you so much that Jesus provides for us. And we thank you, Lord, that he is willing to do it even through us, humble servants of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.